it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have our good friend, Eric Schlein, back with us today. He's back to talk to us about all kinds of stuff. Uh, Eric, for those of you not familiar with him, he is the CEO and owner of Granite State Capital Management, LLC. He's also the owner of a great podcast as well called The Intelligent Investor. So, Eric, thank you for coming back to see us again. And I'm going to turn it over to you and Andrew, and we can go ahead and have our conversation. All right. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Eric. Um, so you and I had the pleasure to speak in a roundtable the other day with Podbean. And so that yes. was a fun live stream that we did. And um, you had some interesting stock picks that you had recently in the real estate. In that, so it's there. there's a thing called a REIT, and it stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. And it's a way for investors to get exposure to real estate without having to go out and buy the real estate themselves. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about a couple of REITs that you bought recently, and then maybe we can talk about how investors who are just starting out can think about REITs and what kinds of things they should look for. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think to, to back up, you know, it's, it's really having an exposure to real estate. And, you know, me as a value investor, I don't Really care if I'm buying real estate or I'm say buying a gold mine in Mongolia, right? I'm I'm just looking for value. However, I I think there is a lot of opportunity, and there there certainly has been a lot of opportunity in real estate over the past few years. So REITs are you know certainly one way to go about investing in real estate. There is just also publicly traded you know real estate uh, available, and you know not every real estate play is structured. As a REIT, right? So there, there is a specific legal structure where they have to, you know, certain ta- you know tax uh, advantages to REITs, and they have they have to distribute you know, a certain percentage of um, income as a dividend. So there, there are there's certain um, legalities and, and tax consequences for that. But so I, so I would say that if you want, um, and again, as someone who's not a tax professional, but if you want exposure to real estate, I wouldn't worry. You know, I wouldn't have just buying a REIT for the sake of buying a REIT because, you know, sure you might get certain tax benefits from a REIT, but then, you know, that might be made, made up for in the, in the price, right? So markets tend to be pretty efficient. And if there's tax benefits to some kind of security that often will also show up in the, the price of the security um, as well. Basically it's not a panacea. Um, you got to look at it just like you would any other investment. Where it, the exactly. Time it could be a good deal and depends on which one you're looking at. Yeah. I mean, for instance, one of the real estate holdings that I own, um, LACO stands for the Los Angeles Athletic Club. You know, that is, that is not a REIT. That's actually a, um, you know, a, a publicly traded, uh, limited partnership. And, you know, that you have to fill out a K1 every, every year and it cannot be in a retirement account. Otherwise, you would be penalized for business income. So that, you know, that would be an example of something not a REIT. I'm also, you know, if you look at some of the 
say Brookfield Asset Management, I mean, they own, you know, some of their publicly traded LPs, but you know, that's not a REIT either. So, so plenty, Can you plenty talk of- about those real quick, because I think that could be interesting too, because sure. not only are they an option in real estate, but you can also buy them with like pipelines and, and mm-hmm. things of that nature. So can you explain that yeah. like simply and, you know, do you buy it just like you with a stock? How does that work? For Lico or Brookfield or, or for both? Just like limited partnerships in general. Oh, sure. So for limited partnerships, they're the ones that are publicly traded. There's private ones too, right? Which, you know, are not bought like they're bought as a stock. There's also private REITs too. Uh, so it can get very complicated, but uh, for for simplicity, there there are publicly traded limited partnerships. So there are some of the Brookfield publicly traded limited partnerships. So they have like Brookfield Renewables, Brookfield Infrastructure, Brookfield Infrastructure Partners is what it's called. So that's what that's the the um, asset that will hold the uh, pipelines. Um, but they also have toll roads and and, and all kinds of other uh, stuff in there. And um, yeah, they have a ticker symbol. So. Brookfield Infrastructure Partners, the ticker, I think, is just BIP, BIP. Um, and then Brookfield Renewables, I think, is BEP, BEP. There's also, they have a uh, Brookfield Business Partner. So they, ha- they have a few of these public limited partnerships. They had Brookfield Property Partners, too, which was BPY. Um, but they just took that uh, private uh, not too long ago at a discount to the net asset value. So what would be the biggest difference between, like, a stock, which is ownership in a company versus buying one of these, like, is this just one of those things we don't really need to necessarily care so much as an average investor, why they structure it this way. Yeah. Um, as, as much as it is, just be aware that these are special structures and that you can buy them like a stock. Yeah. I think in a nutshell, you can buy them like a stock and essentially instead of owning percentage of a business operation, you're owning a percentage of a, usually a collection of uh, of real estate or other kinds of, uh, you know, hard assets. Gotcha. No, that's, that's a great explanation. So what, what was it about? You said like, uh, Laco. Laco. Yeah. You liked and, and what made it a good investment for you? So, you know, what had me invest in Laco? So Little background, LACO stands for the Los, Los Angeles Athletic Club Corporation. Actual, you know, the, biz, the business itself has been around in some capacity since the 1880s. Um, they've gone through a few different corporate structures and they started literally as in uh, the Los Angeles Athletic Club. So for those who live in Los Angeles, in California, uh, it is a staple of downtown LA. Whether you're a member or not a member, people know it what Los Angeles Athletic Club is. And it's, it's a, you know, for people who know what like um, New York sports club is, or I think Chicago has their own athletic club. It's not just like you go to a, you know, a sport, like a typical sports club, right? Like lifetime fitness or, you know, something like that. It's a little, it's almost like lifetime fitness meets a country club. And, you know, you have social events, restaurants, you do an athletic club will have a, you know, typically a pretty nice, so the Los Angeles Athletic Club is a staple of downtown LA, whether you're a member or not. And it's sort of a, you could think of the athletic clubs as kind of like a combination of like a high-end fitness, you know, gym membership mixed with a country club. Um, so, and, you know, some clubs are focused more around like golf, right? This is a club focused more around uh, fitness. So um, there's, you know, basketball courts and a pool and spas and all kinds of stuff. But there's also restaurants and there's also, um, it's very social and, and, and people get together from, for business meetings there, you know, so, and it's like, I don't know how many floors it is. It, it's, it's a lot of stories. It's a very big, tall building. And it's all, they have, their, they have a parking lot as well, adjacent to the building. So the club business itself is, is, is not actually that great. It's pretty mediocre. And, and for many, many years, um, you know, Especially in Los Angeles, um, the club was hurting for many, many, many years. Um, when I say hurting, it just really wasn't growing. There has been a comeback in the, you could say, the club industry, if you will. And it's people of my generation, actually. So generally people who are in their, say, early 30s to early 40s. And, you know, they're maybe starting to make somewhat of a decent income. You don't have to be wealthy, but... 
you know, you're making more than 50, you know, more than a, a low end teacher salary. And, um, it's a lot of these places are re- re- renovating and kind of like a cool hip place to go versus more of the stodginess of sort of like the old school clubs, uh, that, you know, maybe, you know, my grandparents, uh, and great grandparents of that generation would have, would have gone to. So downtown LA was, you could say was worse because, you know, Los, downtown Los Angeles has really uh, not been so nice for a long time. And then, you know, they've had a comeback in the last 10, 20 years or so. So the economics of the club industry has gotten better. And then there's sort of been this extra uh, economic, um, you know, tailwind from the growth of uh, downtown LA. Uh, but the reason I invested in it was not for the club. That was sort of like a free thing added in. The The real reason is a few decades ago, they started investing in self-storage units under the brand name Storage West. And that's where most of the value of Lego is now. And it was a very smart thing to do to take the cash flows and, and put it into self-storage. And especially with interest rates having, you know, this bull market in, uh, you know, bonds and, and consistent lowering of interest rates, cap rates have uh, declined significantly for all real estate. that? Yeah. What's, what's a cap rate? What, what would be like a, a parallel to something that you would see in the stock market? It's, it's like the P ratio for uh, real estate, you could say. Um, Right, so if something's trading at a ten cap, right? So make very, very simple. You have a million dollar property, and say the net operating income is a hundred thousand dollars a year. Hundred thousand divided by a million would be ten percent. So it'd be like a company trading at ten times earnings. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So when it comes to um, with Lego, um, right? You have the, the this incredible portfolio of self storage units. And you could get a gist of you could get a pretty accurate idea of what the what the entire company was worth. In, in some ways, real estate's a little bit easier to figure out um, than businesses because, especially with self storage, it's gonna be a lot more predictable year to year. So what I did is I looked at recent. Um, you, know, you could just look at private market values of self storage. Uh, units and you can look at look at public market values of publicly traded self storage companies um, and Laco if you if you took away the um, athletic club and just looked at the self storage units uh, self storage business or storage west the valuations were significantly lower um, than you know all the public peers of just self storage companies any of the private market valuations. Uh, was trading probably around 50 cents on the dollar of what they could get in, in, in a private transaction. And on top of that, you know, it was, you know, the way that I was able to sort of net out the athletic club is I could, you could actually look at, you know, real estate transactions in the area for downtown LA. So basically for, if if you took sort of an appropriate cap rate back then, so I started buying in 2017 and I, was buying all the way up until 2020 actually um if you looked at appropriate cap rates uh private market value the athletic club would have been trading at a price a square foot at lower prices than an abandoned building that had just been sold uh <laughs> next door so there, there was so you could you could actually say that the athletic the if you if you figured out sort of an idea of what the athletic club was worth at the time the self storage business was trading at about a nine and a half to ten percent cap rate where any of their peers um were trading say on a low end three percent on the high end like six percent and a six and a six cap for self storage um was just not going to be as high quality anyway as as what Storage West has. So so any way you sliced it, this thing was really cheap. Now, the question that I always ask myself when something is literally this obvious, because this was one of this was one of these things that just was screaming out at me. Like I didn't need a spreadsheet to figure this out. And it always makes me a little nervous because if this is so obviously cheap, what what do I see that other people don't see it right i don't have you know it's not like other people don't have this information 
So I, I went to a few people and I said, you know, is there anything wrong with my thesis? And no, nothing wrong. And, but then I realized really quickly why this was probably, you know, misvalued, mispriced. It's had a ton of things going against it uh, structurally, not value wise, but just structurally. So what do I mean by that? Well, number one, it's a publicly traded limited partnership. That means uh, most, pretty much any mutual fund is not allowed to own it. Um, a lot of hedge funds won't own it. And a lot of small time, just, you know, the average Joe investor is not going to buy it either. So, so it's so, a pain in the butt. Paperwork's a real pain in the butt. Accountants hate, hate K1s. Um, yeah. So that's one strike against it. The other strike against it is there's very little liquidity. I mean, if I look even right now today and I say, okay, how much, what's, what's the volume on Laco today? Uh, let's see. So, so far today, oh, today was a huge, a huge volume day for Laco. Actually, 158 uh, units were, were traded. <laughs> one five eight. Yeah, that's one hundred fifty-eight thousand. No, 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 no one hundred fifty-eight. <laughs> now that's based off a unit of price of forty-two hundred dollars a unit. So, you know, it is still a higher dollar amount. But there's many days where it's like one or two trade, and there's many days where zero trade. So, if you are someone with, say, even a hedge fund, but you're running a very large fund, that's too small. Uh, to, you're never going to be able to buy enough units to, you know, even buy like a five percent position. It's not as, it, I mean, it's a small company, but it's not super super tiny. It, you know, the market cap is probably about a five five hundred million or so now. It was, you know, less than that obviously when I bought it. Let's see what the market cap is today. It's uh, yeah, the market cap today. Oh, the market cap's uh seven hundred million today. So when I bought it, it was around four hundred million. The market cap. So it's small, small. I mean, it's not Amazon or Google, but you know, it's not five million or ten million, which I look at too. But the the float, you know, the percentage of shares that are actually trading um, is very low. So the family that has been involved in Laco, it's the Hathaway family, nothing to do with Berkshire Hathaway, just in case you were wondering. Um, but they're they're a very famous family in LA, and you know they were the ones involved in the 1880s. Um, they still control the majority of the units, and I think they. It's like about 70% of the units are controlled by the Hathaway family. And so, right, not very liquid. Uh, so it's not going to be very appealing to, to people for that reason. So that weeds out more people. And then on top of that, you know, there's no room for an activist to get involved because you, you'll never be able to have a majority stake. And then the other thing that's negative too is that they're not very levered. So for a self-storage company to not have a lot of debt actually is not a good thing long-term if, if they're, they're managed well. It's, Street, you know, bu- you, you don't want to buy. loves the leverage. What's that? Wall Street loves their leverage. Yeah. So, you know, buying, having fairly unlevered uh, real estate is a, it's a good way, it's a good way to stay rich, but it's not really a good way to get rich. So, you know, the Hathaway family is almost conservative to a fault. Um, the man and just to give you an idea of how conservative they are, the the company that manages Laco, which is also owned by the Hathaway family, they take a one percent management fee, which is very reasonable. Um, it's an LL, the management LLC to manage the self storage portfolio is called Stability LLC. <laughs> and so, so the you could say the downside is they're conservative to a fault. They really look at this as like a bond like security. Um, I think they're when I talked to management, I think they said their hurdle rate was like they want to make like an eight percent annualized return on any capital they invest. Um, they also have a policy where they return fifty um, percent of the income uh, back to unit holders. So you get it, you get paid while you wait, and then that other fifty percent is reinvested into the company. And then typically, any money left over from that, they will always do a special dividend at the end of the year as well. It's not a lot usually, but They've had surprises. So back a few decades ago, there was a few years where they had a dividend of over 100%. There were like two years where they had a 100% plus dividend because they had sold some assets uh, to some like Japanese investors um, back in like the 80s or something like that. Um, but they have a really interesting history. Ben Stein wrote an article about them many years ago saying it was his second best investment 
other than Berkshire Hathaway. Probably find the find that online somewhere and put a link on the show notes if you want. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, and Laco shows up in the old Walker's manuals. You can you can find them. So you know, here was a situation very 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 low risk. Uh, really, I don't. I mean, I couldn't figure out any way to lose money on this thing. Um, you know, they owned all the land. So, I mean, even if you had like a major earthquake in California, which is where about half of their uh, self-storage properties are based, like, you know, the value is not in the properties themselves. The value is in the land, you know, in the, in the dirt. So they could rebuild on there. Um, and then you had all these free call options, right? So it's like, well, if they read it, if they, if they add to some of these self to, you know, some of these self-storage properties, they could, they could build more stories on, um, they could probably do something with the adjacent lot next to the athletic club and maybe built, you know, there was some talk that as LA as, as population growth goes into downtown LA, they might build some condos. Like, so there's, there's all these, all these ways to win, you know, and they could just sell the self storage business at some point, um, which would be another way to win. And looks like they might now there's been some, you know, recent news on that, but you know, I came up with a valuation back then of around, you know, four to $5,000, um, a unit and uh, this, you know, this was trading in around 2000 um, and that, and that, is, and that, and that was without any growth. I mean, obviously rents gone up since then there's, there's more value now, but you know, it's really rare to find a piece of very stable property, high, very high, uh, high class real estate trading at pretty much 50 cents on the dollar and you get to get paid uh, while you wait. So that was the, that was the thesis on, on, on Laco, but clearly it was, you know, there was, there was reason structurally while it was cheap. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to nerd wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before nerd wallet, I pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles. I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. So how in the world do you find things like that yeah so i found this one um actually a colleague of mine told me so i was at the daily journal meeting that year uh out to see charlie munger in la and um for those that don't know what that is it's uh so charlie who's the vice chairman of berkshire hathaway he is the chairman of another company called daily journal where he doesn't take a salary um they do um they have like a uh 
like a legal business and then the SaaS business now that they're developing it. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to get into it, but it's people don't go because they're shareholders. They go to see Charlie. <laughs> and and um, so I was staying with uh, some friends of mine out there. And um, one of the guys who um, was a stockholder, this guy, Alex Bossert, who I'd, I've known him since he was like a little kid. Like he was like 13 at the first Berkshire Hathaway meeting. And I was like 17 or 18 or something like that. Um, so he's been around those circles and really smart guy. Uh, and he runs Bossert. I think it's called Bossert Capital or something like that. So sh- shout out to him. You know, he's the real deal. And, you know, if, if any of you want to throw him, you know, some money in, in his fund, you know, he, he deserves it. Um, yeah, he was a shareholder in, in Laco, or I'm sorry, a unit holder legally, a unit holder in Laco. Uh, that's another thing. So for those listening, I keep saying units, not shares. So limited partnerships don't technically legally have shares outstanding; they have units outstanding. And limited partnerships don't pay dividends; they pay distributions. So it's it's the same thing; it's just a different legal terminology. So he was a he was a unit it was a, a unit holder of Laco. He told me about the company. And then I did some research on my own and, and that's how I, how I came across it. So the way that I find ideas is, is a mixture. I don't usually actually find ideas from talking to people I have before, but it's, I guess, a combination of surrounding myself with other value investors. And then I just, re- I read a lot and, and come across random stuff and, and it, it's hard to explain, but it's like, you know, you read articles and that leads you down to reading about other companies. And then some point something kind of hits you. That's that's generally my my what what I do. I I don't do I don't really do any screening anymore. Actually, at this point, I don't do any screening anymore because the screeners to me, you know, the sort of the traditional value screens that you would look at, you know, like oh, a company growing at you know X percent a year with twenty percent ROEs or higher and and good profits and trading at twelve p or lower. It's like well, nothing would come up. So. <laughs> often the things that are now coming up on the value screens, like there's, they're not even cheap. Like there's clearly a reason, like a real, a really good reason why they're trading at those valuations. Um, a lot of them are like very cyclical companies where it's not really a real PE. And uh, a lot of it has gotten arbitraged away because everyone has access to, to the same information. So you, I think you need to be a little bit more creative to find value these days. Yeah, I would I would totally agree with that. I know that when I I've run screens through Finviz lately, it, it comes up with the same twelve fifteen companies. Just you know, every month it's you know it's it's the same cast of characters, and it's nothing you wanna you wanna cast in you know a, a line in to try to look at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The thing I liked about um, the story you told about your successful investment was you really honed in not so much on like, Ooh, this is how good this company looks. This is how good the numbers look, but it's like, all right, what did I miss? You know, why does it look so good? Yeah. And then once you identify why wall street's generally staying away from it, then you can notice for yourself, whether it's actually a, a good deal, hate hiding out in plain sight, or it's maybe a value trap where a lot of companies that look cheap, might be cheap because the business kind of sucks. Right. Yeah, I I I'd say that for, you know, individual investors you you know, Buffett has always said this um but it, it's really true. You know, if you're a, a smaller individual investor, you really should be looking more at areas where there's, you know, structural advantages to you such as low liquidity, smaller companies, because you have less competition, so there's there's a higher likelihood there's going to be mispricings in those securities. Now there's also higher like, but you know there's also higher likelihood, uh, just like you might find some undervalued stuff. You're also going to find a lot of really overvalued uh, securities. You know, there's on the OTC markets. I don't think it exists anymore. They merged into something else, but for a while there was a company that's main business was finding Bigfoot. You know, probably overvalued. Um, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Probably happy Maybe. to debate someone if they'd like to come on and <laughs> tell me that it's un- it was cheap back then, but um, could go down an interesting rabbit hole for that. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. We're researching that one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, there's a lot of interesting over-the-counter securities and just tiny, you know, smaller Nasdaq companies that you know you, 
there's nothing wrong with it. They're actually in some ways are easier to analyze because there's, you know, less moving parts. Like it's much easier to analyze Laco than it is to analyze general electric. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the truth. So, so I guess if somebody's tuning in and they, they found the idea of investing in hard assets, mm-hmm. interesting to them, you know, whether it's sure. through a re or a limited partnership or some other way, can you give like a broad overview of you mentioned self-storage units, you mentioned real estate. What are some other examples of things that people can look into and maybe like a beginner's tip or two around those? Yeah, so I guess there's two ways you can look at it. Either pay a fair value for a company that's really, really well managed or find something where you know it's just trading at a real significant discount to the assets. And it seems like there could be some kind of catalyst. The reason I say that you want to feel like there could be something. I will. I, I would never touch a, a REIT that was clearly being horribly mismanaged, where the management owned a lot of stock. They were taking egregious management fees, and it literally looked like nothing would change. You know, the see one of the things with REITs in general, or or any kind of real estate company, is for them to expand. Having their stock trade below net asset value is really bad. Because if they're going to sell stock, right? If they need to raise more capital to buy a new asset, you, you, they're kind of they're really screwed if 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 they're not going to get a fair price uh, for the nav. So I mean, a lot of the model for some of these REITs is like they'll they'll sell stock, you know, so they'll they'll buy an asset at like a you know a seven cap, but they'll but they'll sell stock at a five cap and make the spread, right? That's a very common model. So. There's there's so many ways to look at it, but you, what I would say, it's very easy. It's very easy to find value traps in 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 real estate for you know for the reason I just said, right? You could have just a corrupt management team that's really in it to just you know build build at any price and just want to make you know make the make the management fee and and not really care about producing shareholder value. So you see some of these rates trading at fifty cents of nav, but the stock price is flat for like you know thirty years. You don't really want that. And there's other real estate companies too, like uh, for example, Tijon Ranch out in California. It's you know it's, there's a there was two professors um, out in California that tried to go activist on the company, and they they failed. And it was they, they t- there was a whole article that they wrote about how hard it was, and you know. But there you have a very cozy management team. They do the annual meeting, I think, at a country club every year, and it's apparently really good food, but. You know, they have all this undeveloped land. Clearly, it would be worth more if it was, you know, if if they could get all the permitting done and all that. Like, it would be certainly worth more than the market cap. But, you know, they get paid egregious salaries that pretty much do nothing. And, you know, that could be dead money for another 20, 30 years. You know, so, so at some point, will that land be developed? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And there's some of it developed, but like most of it's not. But you could wait decades, like you know, your grandkids might benefit from it or something like that. <laughs> so, I, I'm I'm stressing this because I think it's really important to first look at like what do you want to avoid with real estate. So, look, you know, avoiding things that could be dead money for decades. You know, there's another company, JG Boswell. There was a great book about the Boswell family, and they own like the largest like cotton, like the largest cotton growers in the United States. Also, largest I think growers of like tomatoes and a few other things. Um, but again, you know, the real estate's probably worth a lot more than the market price. There could be some catalyst where they're selling off some of the the land and the whole idea was there's some water rights, but they keep, they always say at the annual meeting that those water rights really aren't worth anything and people don't know. Are they trying to keep the stock down for tax purposes? Family owns a vast majority. So again, one of these companies, again, it's been flat forever. Not saying there couldn't be value there, but to me, there's just, there's easier stuff to buy. So for example... I bought Laco because they're clearly the the management was ethical. They they you know they're paying, charging a one percent management fee. They have do have a history of selling assets if they thought they were uh, expensive. They are very aligned with shareholders in the fact that they own a majority of the stock, not getting agreed to salaries, and most of the family, the Hathaway family, that's not a management. They pay their bills with the distribution. So they have every incentive to make good investments and, and keep that distribution going up. So I like being, you know, partnered with that family. And then of course you're buying the real estate at 50 cents on the dollar at the time. And now there is a catalyst where there's been some news reports that the that storage west might be 
uh, getting sold, which if it does, I mean, that would, you know, that would be one of those years where it's possible to get a hundred percent dividend, uh, even at the, even at the current price. I mean, the stock's up a lot in the last uh, month after that news report, but you know, there's, 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 there's a, you know, just figuring out my calculations. I mean, even right now they're trading about an eight, an eight cap versus, you know, recent transactions uh, that have gone for uh, like, there was a recent uh, acquisition with uh, another uh, similar self storage company, and those self storage units went for a three cap. So either way, you're still you're, you're still you're still getting a huge discount to the private market value. And I think in a sale, you know, I think total with the athletic club combined, um, you know, you're getting you know say on the low end seven thousand, on the high end ten thousand dollars a unit on a four thousand dollar a unit a stock price. So it could be a special situation that I just don't like to bank on that actually happening. So, you know, it's it's likely if that doesn't happen, the stock will go down from four thousand a little bit. But if it does happen, you know, I think I think you get a lot more than four thousand. And then looking at say like Brookfield Asset Management, right? I mean they have an asset management business, which you'd have I would put on some kind of higher multiple, and then you'd just add up all the the limited partnerships that they own and all the real and all the other private funds they own and add the two together and you know and you get a market price for that. So I was paying you know, maybe 70 cents on the dollar uh, for a company that's been growing double digits for 20 years plus under Bruce Flat, who's one of the best uh, real estate investors in the world. So that's a company where I'm willing to pay a little bit closer. I would honestly pay what I think is fair value for the company and hold it for 20 years. And I think you would do very well. And then there was a company, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, there's another uh, large holding of mine. When I say mine, of both myself and my investors at, at Grand State Capital, Called Cedar Real, you know, Cedar uh, Realty Trust (CDR) is the ticker, and that was a situation they own. It's pretty much all grocery uh, anchored retail. So retail and grocery anchored retail actually goes for very different prices. So grocery anchored retail is just considered a lot more stable. So the cap rates are lower than just general retailer. Uh, you know, with with like a you know like a Cricket cell phone thing. You know, it's like a kind of junky retail stuff, and they're always going in and out. So then during COVID, you know, some of the tenants stopped paying. Uh, you know, CDR has, you know, CDR Realty has a lot of debt. So there was fears that, oh, this company could go bankrupt. And I, and I looked at this and I go, there's no way this is going bankrupt. Like this is grocery anchored retail. Like they're, they're, they're going to, they're going to recoup this. They'll be fine. And I was able to buy a girl, you know, this, this asset at close to a 10% cap rate, uh, where historically this thing had been going for like six, seven cap, uh, and publicly traded. And there was some, activism going on so there was a there was a few funds that were involved so i figured you know, there's there is a potential catalyst there the management was even on record saying that they had been offered a, a price for the company they were willing to sell and then when covid hit it, it it screwed everything up and that was you know a much higher price than than what the current market you know what the current market cap was at the time you know and i you know if it's up like 200% right now for me but i mean people who got it even earlier up like 500 percent for them from the lows and this is just grocery anchored retail right so you know again nothing there was nothing wrong with it it was temporarily impaired but structurally was fine and you could get it really 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 high cap rates so and there was a potential catalyst and you could see that like the management was willing to to sell so Again, you know, there's different ways of looking at it, but you know, you 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 just don't want to get stuck in something where you really have a corrupt management team. And there's no way things will change, and if things have been going like that for 20 years, who's to say it won't go on for another 20 years like that? Yeah, that's very true. So, how do you we you've talked a little bit about management over the last few companies you've talked about. So, how do you go about assessing management? What are what are some things that you know, beginner slash, you know, intermediate, intermediate level people could look at to, to really give them a sense of what you're talking about with management. Yeah, sure. So with a real estate company, you know, have they done positive things for shareholders, right? I mean, you know, typically if you look at a stock chart and the thing's flat for 30 years, it's probably not a good management team. So, you know, what do their salaries look like? You know, what are they being paid to manage this real estate essentially? Um, are their incentives aligned, right? Do you, uh, have, do they have a history of, of good capital allocation? I mean, that's, that's a big one, right? Cause some of these companies, again, might just be in it to, to grow at whatever price possible just so they can make more money on the managerial end saying, well, we own a billion in assets now. Have they bought back stock when, when they thought the stock was cheap? Have they sold stock at opportune times to buy, you know, cheaper real estate? 
how you know for more stable REITs, you know, has the distribution has the has the dividend been uh been going up over time? You know, if you look at the partnerships under Brookfield, right? They they say you know here's what we sort of target. Here's the history of distribution growth. It's pretty consistent growth, right? Management's very aligned with shareholders. You know, I would say study Brookfield. You know, read read the Brookfield shareholder letters from Brookfield Asset Management, but then also read the partnership shareholder letters from the individual uh, public partnerships. And, you know, you could see they're very, very, very shareholder uh, aligned at, at those companies and they really understand value and, and uh, you know, and Brookfield owns a big chunk of those partnerships too. So if they go down Brookfield, you know, we get hurt with them. Yeah, those, those are good insights. So I guess thinking along those lines, do you find that that management across different sectors are different or are are these things that we're sure. talking about REITs, you know, if you look at, if you transfer these ideas to tech or to, uh, you know, I don't know, energy is there, are we looking at the same things? I mean, there's similar principles. I mean, the thing is, is like a dishonest management team in a REIT is really scary or any kind of real estate company because, uh, and this actually happened when REITs first came into existence. I think it was like, it was under Dwight Eisenhower. So I guess the fifties, I think it was the fifties. It was. Okay. There was there was a a lot of you know this is before interest rates you know where inflation was really getting underway but there was a real hype around 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 REITs just because oh we can buy at real estate assets but there was a lot of accounting shenanigans because it's it's much easier to manipulate you know numbers and accounting numbers with with owning real estate than it is you know owning you know than manipulating cash flows of you know. Uh, of, of a tech company or something. So if you have an untrustworthy management and they're getting paid over a percentage of the assets or something like that, you know, who's, who's to stop them from, you know, fudging the numbers a little bit and saying, well, this is, this is worth X when really it should be worth, you know, half of X or something like that. So it's a little bit, you need to trust management a lot more. I think when, when you're coming down, when you're looking at real estate, the other thing that definitely translates is, you know, the whole concept of empire building, you know, so there's a real incentive to empire build if you're owning real estate, right? Especially in this, especially in this interest rate environment, right? I could just raise assets and, and buy things and make a six, 7% return, you know, sell a lot of stock, grow a company. People are fine with it because it's better than making, you know, you know, their 2% or 3% somewhere else. So there's a lot of people getting rich, Executives getting very, very rich, and the shareholders are not. You know, they're getting bond-like returns over over decades, while the while the executives make millions. It's pretty disgusting. So there's some incentives, and there's some overlap there. Um, certainly, different industries. It's it's easier to get away with certain things. I, I think like other industries that are notorious that you have to really watch out for is like you know mining, um, oil and gas. Mining tends to even be worse than oil and gas. You just have a lot of these like. It's, it's some crazy stuff I, I've seen over the years, you know, lying about reserves or, you know, do you do like one little drill and you say, oh, there's some gold here. And then you raise a bunch of money and turn out that's the only pot with some like gold specs. And um, I've seen science, I've, I've seen companies hire scientists to fudge, you know, mineral deposit numbers or it's, it's, it's insane. And some of these guys, they go from like mining company to mining company and do like their little scams and I don't get away with it. So, yeah, I mean, certainly, I think commodities in general you have to be careful with. But yeah, every 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 industry is going to have their own dynamics. But you know, what you could almost say, well, what does what does it mean to have ethical management? Right? Have they over time been consistent what they said they were going to do? Have they underpromised and overdelivered, uh, or do they overpromise and then have excuses about the weather of why they don't deliver? So there's all these nuances where I, I think sometimes you know you read enough of these. Old, you know, conference call transcripts, investor presentations, talk to enough people. There's there's a lot of nuances too that you start to see in in, in specific situations. It's just so hard to give you these like overarching, you know, principles because they are going to be applied so differently, to different companies and industries. Oh, that is very helpful. I know, Dave. You we've talked before. You saw this thing on Twitter about how somebody found a way to identify when somebody's doing that whole jumping thing from company to company to kind of stay away from a management who might be less ethical. 
Do you remember what that was? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Well, I'll tell I, uh, you. There's, there's, a, there's. Oh, I'll tell. You. Oh, go ahead. No, no, it'd be great okay. if you could explain. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's one thing that I've seen, and I don't know if this is a, uh, if this is going on, but I, I was at an annual meeting of like a, a four million, five million. It's a very tiny company, and I was one of like two people there at this annual meeting. And I don't even want to say the name because I'm I'm like actually nervous. They would the the company would try to pull some shenanigans on me. Like if the thing was run by crim, like literally run by criminals. Um, and it was horrifying to see this actual theft happening in real time. You know, it happened in this little conference room. They try to kick us out. Um, they screamed at my friend. Like it it was it was crazy. And and they were saying, well, you know. Eric's not a shareholder and I wasn't. So they, uh, my friend gave me a share by proxy. Like, <laughs> like it, it, they just, they just kept, they kept pulling everything in the book to have what was about to happen, not be public public. Of course we saw it and you know, they, they was this land deal that they were doing where, uh, and their lawyer was there too. And, and, and my friend asked a question about, this piece of real estate that they sold. And it was like, you know, you sold it for just making it up. Like, you know, you sold it for three and a half million, but didn't you tell me it was worth 5 million like a few months before? It's like, well, at the time that's what it was worth, but this is what we got for it. He goes, well, would you be surprised if I talked to someone who said he offered to, to buy it for, for 7 million, but you didn't take his offer, but you sold it for three and a half. And the lawyer's like, well, that was just what was in best interest for shareholders. And, 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 and he's like, well, well, why'd you do this? Well, that's not germane to the meeting. It's like, what? <laughs> so it's like you put the pieces together and it's like they probably just sold it to like one of their friends and then took an interest in the property or something and, and they're literally stealing from shareholders. There was also a uh, a spin-off transaction that they ended up canceling, which I don't know why they ended up canceling it. Maybe they were afraid of litigation. There was just a spin-off transaction they were going to do. So it was so my so my friend goes, uh, oh, so you're gonna have so us shareholders were gonna have two stocks. Right? Because it was like they had their they have their main business and then they were going to be spinning off their main business. So they could, and then there was going to be an empty shell as the second business. And the CEO was like, well, we're doing the spinoff so that shareholders could have a clean slate. And then they had a whole business model of what they were going to do with the clean slate. And he goes this way, we get, you know, shareholders going to rid themselves of all our liabilities. Well, it turned out most of the liabilities were in de- like deferred revenue. <laughs> so what they were doing was literally stripping the entire company of all the assets leaving shareholders with a blank shell, calling it a spinoff of the blank, you know, and they were going to spin off the assets to a, a separate private company that was not going to be owned by shareholders. And it turned out that the owners of this private company was like the CEO and some of the people on the board. <laughs> and it's like, well, if you think these are so horrible assets, then why are you buying them? Yeah. And the lawyer's like, well, that's not germane to the meeting. <laughs> and <laughs> I object, your honor. <laughs> right. So, but the the reason I bring this up is that when I googled, when I googled this guy, one of the guys who was who was one of the nastier ones on the board, uh, it turned out he was a uh, former New York City prosecutor. Right. So probably knows a thing or two about how to navigate the legal system. And it turned out he was on the board of like ten other publicly traded companies too oh. that were also tiny, tiny microcaps. So what I, my my theory is is that. These guys are committing fraud, right? And but they're doing it at such a small level, right? They're probably you know, skimming a few hundred k. Like even if they make a hundred k off all those transactions, and they do it with ten tiny little companies, that's a million dollars a year they're they're making from that, right? So right. But and it's and the problem is, it's hard to get these guys because you know that was that was like a three four million dollar company market cap. What are you going to spend a million dollars in or say five hundred thousand dollars in litigation? for your $100,000 position or something. So <laughs> these guys can get away with it for years. And the problem is you contact the SEC. Most of the time they won't do anything. It's too small. You know, there was, there's twice where I found fraud at tiny little companies. Both times are reported to the SEC. Nothing ever happened. And so, you know, I think it creates this fraud essentially where people, you can work these little tiny companies to skim off the top, but not enough to get the SEC to notice, and it's horrible. Yeah, it is horrible. I agree. 
does uh, bring light into, you know, really doing your due diligence if you're looking at these tiny, tiny companies. You had some really great insights today, and we want to thank you for, you know, all the examples and stories you gave. And hopefully people who are looking into investing in companies that are maybe more on the hard asset side, whether that's a REIT, whether that's something else, they have something to come out with that they can help either avoid big trouble or find a great deal. So, you know, you've been on the show a couple of times, but for the people who are just turning in for the first time with you, where's the best place that people can find out more about you and get in tune with what you're doing online? Yeah, sure. So if they want to check out my investment management company, I, I, you know, I do manage uh, separately managed accounts and, you know, I am taking uh, new investors at the time. Um, so if, if, if people were interested in, in learning more about me or would like to contact me or even potentially uh, invest with me and you're someone who is, you know, long-term minded and you, you, you're aligned with the value approach, I would actually love for you to contact me and my, my website, uh, for Grand State Capital Management is gscm.co. Um, and then as Dave said earlier, I do have my own podcast. If they want to listen to my podcast, it's the Intelligent Investing Podcast. And they can just, uh, you know, if you can put a link uh, to the show, but it's, it's, it's intelligentinvesting.podbean.com and um, they can check out the show there. And then, you know, for sort of the my generation, you know, if you have Instagram or Twitter, I guess the older generation too, but <laughs> I'm, hey. I'm, I'm not going to discriminate against age. You know, if, uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, it's just my name, Eric Schlein. It's kind of hard to spell, so I would just ask you guys put that in the show notes too. Yeah, of course. And that's for Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I do respond to every single message I get on Instagram with that's investment related. Um, so you know, if you wanted, you know, to talk to me a little bit more about what I discussed in the show or just had general questions for me, I'm I love helping people, so I'm always happy to help. And you can DM me or shoot me a thing on Twitter and, and happy to, happy to connect. I love doing this. What about if I'm a fraudulent corporate lawyer? <laughs> Get the hell away from me. I don't, even, I don't even want to be in, involved in you at all. <laughs> all the corporate lawyers. DM you can call me at 555-5555 if you're, if you're a fraudulent corporate lawyer. Yeah, good luck getting through. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm very I'm very busy on that one, so yeah. you might have to try a few times. It might be a busy signal. Just yeah. call back. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Leave a message. I'll get back to you. Right. All right. Well, Eric, thank you very much for coming to join us. We really appreciate it. It's always fun, and you always bring such great stories and great uh, insights into lots of things that we just don't think about, which is really cool. So we appreciate you sharing all that with us. And uh, everybody, check out his site. Check out his podcast. Definitely reach out to him on Instagram or Twitter. I have, and he, he does respond. So I, I, can, I can vouch for that. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. Talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.